Blog Talk Radio. Today is Thursday, September 21st, 2017, and we are live today, uh, running late tonight. We have a lot to talk about tonight. Um, very busy day. I had to do uh, my segment on the morning show here in Detroit, Wake Up with Steve Hood, 9, 10 a.m., the Superstation. Did that from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m., and then... Um, 11 a.m. to about 2 p.m. I was with Dr. Claude Anderson today. He was in Detroit speaking at Wayne County Community College. So I was there and recorded some of that. Um, we po- we broadcasted on our Facebook fan page, the African History Network, the African History Network. So uh, some of you saw that uh, live broadcast today. Uh, Dr. Claude Anderson was on. Uh, he was the keynote speaker at an event a panel discussion dealing with the 1967 Detroit Rebellion and the origins of Wayne County Community College, things like that, and what African Americans should do today. Okay, so very busy with that, and then I uh, had to put together content for tonight's show also. All right, so uh, you can uh, listen to the show. We're broadcasting on the Blog Talk Radio Network and our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network on Facebook. So you can call in and listen by phone, 914-338-1375. 914-338-1375 is the call-in number if you have a question or comment. Um, and you can listen by phone, but you can also call that number if you have a question or comment. Press the number one key uh, to put you in the queue if you have a question or comment. Then also you can go to uh, Facebook, uh, and our Facebook fan page is the African History Network the African History Network on Facebook, okay? So you can um, watch us on Facebook also, okay? The African History Network on Facebook. All right, and uh, you can go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network show, blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network show. Okay, so on tonight's show, I want to deal with a few topics here. Number one, the back, the uh, bank black movement. The bank black movement uh, continues after one year. Um, we know that it really took off in July of uh, 2017 after the killing of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, but it actually went back. It started around February, January, February of two, sorry 2016, uh, after the killing of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. Uh, in July of 2016, uh, it really took off, but it actually goes back to uh, January and February 
of 2016. Okay, so we're going to talk about the uh, hashtag Bank Black Movement continues one year later. We'll deal with that. And then also, uh, uh, you know, Colin Kaepernick is still in the news. Um, this past Sunday on the African History Network show on 910 AM, the Superstation, uh, I talked about um, Jamel Hill and ESPN. Um, I talked about uh, Colin Kaepernick. Um, we dealt with the National Action Network, Reverend Al Sharpton, Kid Rock, uh, the Kid Rock protests here in Detroit, uh, opening op- the opening act at the Little Caesars Arena. And I wrote the article. Um, well, I did I, this past Sunday. I dealt with this on my show, the racist history of the white national anthem and the Pledge of Allegiance. I wrote an article tonight about that. You can uh, we have it posted at our Facebook fan page, the African History Network the African History Network, and you can read all of my articles at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. The name of that article is The Racist History of the White National Anthem and the Pledge of Allegiance. The Racist History of the White National Anthem and the Pledge of Allegiance. And in that uh, article is the uh, the video of uh, Sunday night's broadcast where I went in depth uh, into that topic, okay? So you can read that at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Uh, just click on the link right on the home page, read articles with Michael M. Hotel. Now, we know that Colin Kaepernick uh, has uh, pledged $1 million to various uh, charities, and he just pledged $25,000 uh, to nonprofit organizations aimed at helping DACA, recipient, DACA recipients. DACA recipients. And DACA deals with deferred action. Uh, uh, deals with deferred action dealing with um, children of um, of undocumented immigrants. Okay, DACA. So we're going to talk about that, and then um, you know I've dealt with uh, extensively. You see some of our Facebook fan page posts. You you hear the show. Uh, some of you have seen the presentation I've done. Um, African American resistance in the era of Donald Trump. Voter suppression, reparations, and how elections have consequences. African American resistance. In the era of Donald Trump, voter suppression, reparations, and high elections have consequences, okay? So I've dealt with how um, Donald Trump and the Trump administration are consistently, systematically reversing policies that President Obama had in place. Systematically reversing policies that President Obama had in place, okay? Now, the biggest problem here is that most African Americans don't even know that these policies were in place, okay? Most African Americans don't even know that these policies were in place, so so they didn't know reasons why they should vote because those policies were on the ballot, but they didn't know it. These policies were at stake of being reversed. One of those policies comes from the Department of Education, and Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos is systematically reversing policies President Obama had in place, with, with, whether it deals with predatory colleges and people having to pay back student loans from predatory colleges. But specifically, Betsy DeVos is rolling back uh, campus sexual assault, uh, the role that the Department of Justice plays when it comes to campus, uh, the uh, uh, college campus assaults, uh, sexual assaults, okay? And uh, these rollback in rules from the Obama administration are especially going to put African-American women at risk. African-American women are going to be disproportionately affected by these rollbacks when it comes to uh, the Department of Education's role in campus sexual assaults, okay? And this is something that's not being talked about in mainstream media. They talked about it on News One Now with Roland Martin. 
They've been dealing with that. And also AtlantaBlackStar.com has an article about this as well. Okay. Once again, elections have consequences. Once again, elections have consequences. And these people who uh, told you to don't vote in, in the past election, a lot of these pseudo-intellectuals, many of them working at white institutions, a lot of these pseudo-intellectuals, they're not speaking up on this issue mostly. They're largely silent on these constant reversals from the Obama, from the Trump administration of policies that President Obama put in place. So we'll deal with that also tonight. Then also the NAACP is suing the Trump administration over DACA because uh, ending the program affects thousands of African and Caribbean immigrants. Okay. Yes, the majority of the immigrants who are affected are Hispanic, but you have thousands, it's estimated about 50,000 are um, African immigrants and, and immigrants from the Caribbean who are African people also, okay? So when you deal with a lot of these different policies, there's an impact that uh, impacts the African-American community as well, impact, impact African-Americans. These are people, uh, oftentimes they become part of our family, we marry them, all right? And what a lot of people don't want to deal with, AtlantaBlackStar.com has done a good job of this. So most seriously, you may want to read some of the articles from AtlantaBlackStar.com to educate yourself on the impact that uh, undocumented immigrants, uh, because the undocumented immigrants, right, the 800,000 that are covered under DACA, 50,000 of them are African-American, 50,000 of them are of African descent. They are related to the 11 million undocumented immigrants, and there are 535,000 approximately uh, undocumented immigrants that are of African descent, okay? So this also relates to the African-American community. Now, a lot of people don't know how uh, it relates to it, which is why you should listen to the show. And then also read the article that I wrote dealing with do uh, uh, immigrants take jobs from African-Americans? Do immigrants take jobs from African-Americans? Because the data speaks to the controversy, to, speaks to the contrary of that. And actually, immigrants contribute to the overall economy, which helps grow the overall economy. But people don't want to deal with any, uh, uh, people don't want to deal with facts and evidence when it comes to this. Okay, now somebody's saying that the uh, sound is distorted. So testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Okay, so sound is distorted here on Facebook. Just a second, let me try to. Well, testing one, two, three, testing one, two, three, testing one, two, three. Okay, testing one, two, three, testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Okay, I'm not sure why it's distorted. It should work itself out here on Facebook. I adjusted the uh, microphone. So, so hopefully it clears up here on Facebook, okay? Uh, let me try to adjust the mic one more time. All right. Try to adjust that one more time. Testing, one, two, three. Testing. Test, testing, one, two, three. Okay, it sounds like it cleared it up. Don't know why it's acting up on Facebook, but it sounds like it cleared it up, okay? All right, so... Um, so read the article that I wrote dealing with um, the do uh, immigrants take jobs away from African-Americans, okay? Because largely they don't, and they contribute to the economy to actually grow the economy. But 
uh, and the studies to support this. I deal with this in the uh, I deal with this in the article, and at the same time, the same people who say immigrants take jobs away from African Americans, these same people won't tell you that there are um, uh, 6.2 million unfilled jobs right now in this country. There's 6.2 million unfilled jobs right now in this country open. They won't even talk about that. Why? Because they don't do the research. They don't know that it even exists. I deal with this in the article. AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Read all of my articles there. Uh, actually, 565,000 uh, uh, of the 11 million undocumented immigrants are of African descent. Okay? And they are uh, oftentimes they're overlooked by the media, uh, oftentimes, and they're quicker to be deported as well. They're quicker to be deported as well. Okay? All right, so this is a very, very big issue, which has wide-ranging, a wide-ranging impact on the African-American community, and a lot of people aren't dealing with this, okay? A lot of people are not talking about this because they don't have the correct information to talk about it uh, in the first place. All right, so on the African History Network show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it corrects wrong behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you have been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man's thoughts, you can control the circumference of his actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Now, we deal with, deal with a number of different topics here on the show. We deal with current events in history, politics, education, economics, uh, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Sign up for our, our email newsletter. We just sent one out about a half hour ago. Actually, about an hour, almost an hour ago now. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, to 22828. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, to 22828. To sign up for our email newsletter. Also go to our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Sign up for our email newsletter there as well at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. <clears throat> All right. Um, also, we'll do with this date in African-American history, okay? want to remind you I'll be in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, the end of this month, October, uh, September 29th through October 1st. For the All Black National Convention, you know, we had Dr. Boyce Watkins on a couple weeks ago talking about that, the All Black National Convention. I'll be in Atlanta the weekend of October 13th uh, through the 15th for the Black Friday uh, Part 2, the Living Legacy World Tour. Uh, this um, Black Friday Part 2 was coming out October 13th. We're doing a, a, a screening of it at the Impact Event Center in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. Friday, October 13th, and they, I think they're going to show it on Saturday also at another location. Go to AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We have the information there. So I'll be in Atlanta then, and then November 18th through the 20th, I'll be back in Atlanta for the Black Power Awards, second annual Black Power Awards weekend, um, and we'll get that information up at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com also, okay? All right, let me go to this first story here. So... You know, we, we've been talking about the uh, uh, bank black movement, hashtag bank black movement, which was started by One United Bank, the largest African-American-owned bank in the country, based upon assets managed at uh, $655 million in uh, assets, I think it is currently. Um, 
And we posted articles from Financial Juneteenth uh, last year that dealt with how back in uh, February during African American History Month, you had hip hop artists like Killer Mike and Jermaine Dupree, uh, you had um, T.I., Usher. And they were encouraging African Americans to open up bank accounts with one United Bank, well, well, with Citizens Trust Bank there in Atlanta, and then with African American owned banks in general. Okay. And then we saw this um, take off in July. Uh, of last year after the killings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, okay? Um, so on Facebook, CL Tisdale said a lot of these jobs are high-tech jobs with specific, with specific skills. You have 4 million unfilled jobs in the STEM fields, un- 4 million, but you got 2 million jobs that are not in the STEM fields, Okay. All right, and a lot of those are high-paying jobs. Those are jobs that we should get training for to go after, but you have other jobs that are not in the STEM fields also, okay? Read my article at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Read my article at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. It's interesting how we always keep coming up with excuses, okay? People, even even if you go back and if you go to MSNBC.com and search for Mike Rowe, R-O-W-E, Search for Mike Rowe, and I talked about this in an interview that Boyce Watkins did with me uh, on his uh, YouTube channel. September 1st, 2017, Mike Rowe was interviewed uh, on uh, Meet the Press Daily by uh, Chuck Todd. So Mike Rowe used to do the job, uh, he used to do the show Dirty Job, I think it was, something like this. Each week he talked, he, he showcased a different job that he was doing, okay? And he dealt with, uh, he talked about how uh, you have uh, 6 million, 6.2 million unfilled jobs right now in the U.S. And he talked about how uh, Trump was at a meeting a few weeks ago with CEOs of corporations, and he said that we're going to bring the jobs back, okay? He said, he said, we, he said we're going to bring jobs back. We're going to bring jobs back. And some of the CEOs told him, he said, Mr. President, we have the jobs right now. We can't fill them. We can't find qualified people to fill the jobs, all right? So where's the effort to focus in on those 6.2 million jobs that are unfilled? At the same time, people don't want to give any credit to President Obama because unemployment for African Americans was cut in half under President Obama. People don't want to deal with facts and evidence. We want to deal with anecdotes. Read Progress of the African American Community under, uh, in the Obama administration, Progress of the African American Community in the Obama administration. Where'd you get that from? Whitehouse.gov. Go to whitehouse.gov. And you can research each one of those Statistics. This this shows how policies impact every aspect of your life. This shows how policies impact every aspect every aspect of your life. Testing one, two, three. Okay, so it's acting up on Facebook. I don't know why. Let me try to adjust the mic. Testing one, two, three, testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Um you can call in, listen by phone at 914-338-1375, 914-338-1375, okay, 914-338-1375, and you can also uh, listen at blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network show, blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network show. We'll post a link here uh, from Blog Talk. So, uh, the root.com had an article uh, written by Michael Harriet uh, from Monday, September 18th. 
and uh, 2017, okay? And name of this article is uh, One Year After Hashtag Bank Black, America's Biggest Black-Owned Bank Still Doing the Work, okay? So we're going to post this here on our Facebook fan page. We'll post this information, uh, listen to the show. Oh, shit, I didn't mean to do that. Listen at 914-338-1375. 914-338-1375, okay? I just ended the broadcast on Facebook. I didn't mean to do that. All right, let's start this back up. All right, let's start this back up here. Okay. Just a second here. Those listening on Blog Talk Radio. All right, and you can call in if you have a question or comment, 914-338-1375. 914-338-1375 is the call-in number if you have a question or comment. All right. Starting back up on Facebook. Okay, so we're back on Facebook. Uh, we're back here. Okay, so we're back on Facebook. I hit the wrong button. I was trying to post the information um, to um, you can call in. All right, let's do this and let's pin that. Okay, nine one four three three eight thirteen seventy five is the call in number if you have a question or comment. Nine one four three three eight thirteen seventy five is the call in number if you have a question or comment. Okay. All right. So I was talking about the uh the article here from um I was talking about the article here from um the root dot com, okay? And it's uh from Michael Harriet. And it's entitled uh, One Year After Hashtag Bank Black, America's Biggest Blank Owned, uh, America's Biggest Black Owned Bank Still Doing the Work. Okay. America's Biggest Black Owned Bank Still Doing the Work. All right. Let's pin that comment. Share this broadcast on your own Facebook page. Invite your friends to tune in also. All right. Okay. So um, in the article, this is from September 18th. Uh, 2017, this past Monday, he uh, he talks about how um, hip hop has become a cultural powerhouse that fuels everything from fashion to corporate profits. He said they rap in beer commercials. Politicians come to Jay Z for endorsements. With all his faults, more than any any form of art that ever existed, hip hop has always openly acknowledged that mo- the the most powerful force in America, which is money. Um, every conversation about equality, civil rights, and justice eventually collides at the intersection of wealth. Economic inequality is the underlying cause of many of the problems that face black America. Well, it ain't, it's not economic inequality. It's white supremacy and racism. Economic in, inequality comes out of white supremacy and racism. The inability to afford adequate representation fuels the disparity in convictions and sentencing in the justice system. 
America's history of racist housing policies, ghettos, and underfunded schools traces back to lending institutions using redlining as a tool of segregation. Well, redlining comes from the uh, Homeowners Loan Corporation, uh, founded, created in 1933 by the U.S. government. Okay, that's where the redlining system comes from that the insurance companies are going to use and the real estate companies are going to use. Okay, the real estate industry, real estate industry will use. He goes on to say, after marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, boycotting buses in Montgomery, Alabama, and standing on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., and telling the world about his dream at the end of his life, Martin Luther King Jr. planned the poor man's uh, march or the poor people's march. Every enlightened soul from Martin Luther King Jr., to Malcolm X, from Tupac to the notorious B.I.G., eventually reaches the same conclusion. It's all about the Benjamins, baby, okay? Now, Dr. King was dealing with economic empowerment long before then, and if you actually read the text of his speech called A Cancel Check, delivered August 28, 1963, which later became known as the I Have a Dream speech, he deals with economics in that speech, and uh, he was talking about holding America accountable for a a uh, promissory note given to us 100 years prior, um, and when we went to cash that promissory note, it was marked insufficient funds, okay? This is why the original name of that speech was called a canceled check, not I, not I have a dream, okay? So he goes on to say, Michael Harriet in this article from TheRoot.com, he goes on to say, on July 8th, 2016, hip-hop artist Killer Mike in a town hall meeting on MTV MBET, um, uh, hip-hop artist uh, Killer Mike called into a town hall meeting on MTV and BET. Instead of dispensing uh, trite maxims and well-worn platitudes, the politically conscious rapper did what he is known for doing. He offered solutions. Killer Mike called for one million uh, African Americans to deposit $100 each into a black bank. Okay, he called for one million African Americans to deposit uh uh, $100 each into a black bank. And this was, this was in Atlanta. He was calling for, them, calling for them to do this in Atlanta. And he was telling them to put their money in Citizens Trust Bank uh, in Atlanta, okay? And this worked, all right? He, he was also interviewed on, um, by Ms. Shanika uh, in Atlanta. I think it was 102.7 or something like that in, in Atlanta. And that was um, July, that was uh I think the day after Philando Castile was shot and killed. So it was that like that Friday? I think that was like July 7th or July 8th. He was interviewed. That went viral. They live streamed that on Facebook. That uh, that clip went viral, okay? And I know within about a month, within about uh, three or four weeks, it had been viewed something like four million times, all right? So, and we talked about that here on this show as well. So the hashtag blank, the, the hashtag bank black took off across Twitter and officially became a movement. The 95-year-old Citizens Trust Bank saw at least 8,000 new accounts in the first five days open, and they posted on uh, Instagram about this, uh, Citizens Trust Bank, with a minimum opening requirement of $100. A week later, African-Americans across the country moved at least $1 million, at least $1 million to African-American-owned banks, and perhaps no bank benefited more than America's uh, biggest black-owned bank, which is One United Bank. Okay, they're the largest black-owned uh, bank based upon um, uh, assets uh, managed. Okay, and that's at uh, about six hundred and fifty-five million dollars. 
So uh, One United Bank noticed a huge influx of new accounts after the hashtag blank back, uh, bank black uh, uh, began trending on social media platforms, boosting the financial institutions' uh, assets to $655 million. Okay. Now, prior to that, uh, I want to look and see what their assets were. There was an article from uh, that we've talked about before on the show. There was an article from June 19th, 2016. Okay, so this is one month before the uh, hashtag really took off. There was an article from AtlantaBlackStar.com called Black Dollars Matter. Black Dollars Matter. What will it take for black banks to start leveraging our wealth and recycled dollars within the community again? Black Dollars Matter. Okay, what will it take for... um, what will it take for black dollars to start leveraging our wealth and recycled dollars within the black uh, community again? Okay, this is from June 19th, 2016 by David A. Love for AtlantaBlackStar.com. Okay, and uh, in this article, he talks about One United Bank and Terry Williams, who's the president of One United Bank, and he talks about how... Um, uh, I think at the time of this article, One United had 600, they, they were managing assets of $650 million. Now they're managing assets of $655 million, okay? All right, so uh, Michael Harriet in the article from theroot.com goes on to say, the movement still gaining momentum and has shown no indication of slowing down, according to uh, One United Bank's executives. One United Bank has always been aware of this dynamic. Instead of casting itself as a bank that just happens to be black-owned, it has always uh, wanted the world to know that it is unapologetically black and has focused on economic empowerment for the African-American community since its inception. Since its its inception. Now, One United Bank is headquartered in Boston, Massachusetts, and was started in 1968 as Unity Bank and Trust. The bank acquired other financial institutions over the years, eventually becoming the largest African-American-owned bank in the country. One United Bank's chairman and CEO, Kevin Cohee, C-O-H-E-E, has steered the bank for years with a focus on growing African-American wealth, along with uh, President and Chief Operating Officer Terry Williams. Terry Williams and Terry Williams was interviewed in the uh, piece from AtlantaBlackStar.com from June 19, 2016. Once again, called "Black Dollars Matter." Black Dollars Matter. What will it take for Black banks to start leveraging our wealth and recycle dollars within the community again? So, spending dollars with African American-owned businesses is good. Spending dollars with African-American-owned businesses is good. Dr. Claude Anderson talked about that today. Circulating our dollars, we were spending 2% of our uh, dollars with African-American-owned businesses. Now it's 3%. Um, Maggie Stewart, Maggie Anderson, uh, who who uh, launched the, um, uh, the economic power tours, Maggie Anderson talks about that. She's uh, actually referenced in this article also. And I, I wrote an article uh, either last year, year before last, uh, dealing with the segment from News One Now with Roland Martin on TV One, where he interviewed Maggie Anderson, 
and they were talking about these economic power empowerment tours that Maggie Anderson was having. And she uh, wrote the book, uh, Our Black Year, which dealt with her family's journey uh, and commitment of going an entire year with just buying products and services from African-American-owned businesses. Okay. And uh, so you can read that article at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. The name of that article was, um, Why is the lifespan of a dollar only $6 in the African-American community? Why is the lifespan of a dollar only $6 in the African-American community? Okay. And uh, so you could check out that article. Uh, don't let that statistic scare you because there's very little evidence to support that statistic. It's at least 20 years old. And people have done research really trying to verify that, and we can't really verify that statistic. Okay. But you can read that article at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Now, one of, one of One United Bank's biggest initiatives is home ownership. Home ownership. Which, and home ownership is inextricably tied to wealth and financial security, okay? Now, as um, Deborah Owens, who's known as America's Wealth Coach, and she is on News One Now a lot, Deborah Owens, uh, she's uh, um, a uh, financial uh, planner and um, financial advisor, okay? And she talks about, Home ownership is not really a good strategy for wealth creation, okay? If you want to create wealth, the, the, one of the best ways to create wealth is not to take out a 30-year mortgage or 15-year mortgage, go into debt to buy a home. But home ownership can lead to wealth creation long term, okay? Um, and you had a lot of people who, like in the 1990s, because of the downturn in the economy in the 90s, and even in uh, the early 2000s with the recession that took place, um, they had homes. When they lost their job, they couldn't keep up with the mortgage payments, ended up losing their home. We saw this with subprime mortgages, things like this. So they were trying to live the American dream. And many of them lost their home. Some had to file bankruptcy, things like this. Okay. So even though home ownership can lead to wealth creation long term, home ownership is not a good strategy to create wealth because you usually you're incurring a lot of debt. Now, if you can buy a house and not have to take out a mortgage, pay cash for a house and turn that into a rental property, that's different than buying the home for residential purposes for you to live in. Okay, that's different. All right. Okay. Uh, on Facebook, we got Jared. How you doing, Jared? C.O. Tisdale, Gary, few to few people listening. You can also call in and uh, listen by phone at 914-338-1375. 914-338-1375. Uh, you can also listen to the show at blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network show blogtalkradio.com forward slash the African History Network show. Uh, we'll post that information here on the thread of our Facebook Live broadcast here once again. And if you have a question or comment, 914-338-1375, okay? And press the number one key when you call in, okay? Um, all right, so Back to this article from TheRoot.com. So Michael Harriet talks about how Forbes magazine, which is a financial magazine, one of the leading financial business magazines in the country, For Forbes 
magazine reports that the lifetime financial achievements of the typical homeowner is 45 times that of the average renter. The lifetime financial achievements of the typical homeowner is 45 times that of the average renter. Okay, now this is basically dealing with white people, it's not basically dealing with African Americans. But once again, homeownership can lead to wealth creation, accumulated wealth, but it's not a good strategy going by taking out a 30 year loan, 30 year mortgage, 15 year mortgage to buy a house to live in is not a good strategy to create wealth. Now, a home is usually the largest asset in a middle class earnest portfolio of wealth. A home is usually the largest asset in a middle class earner's portfolio of wealth. Notice middle class. Okay. Now, in 2016, the U.S. Treasury Department awarded One United Bank uh, the Bank Enterprise Award, the Bank Enterprise Award for its efforts in community development lending. The company also teamed up with the Massachusetts Affordable Housing Alliance to promote home ownership with the hashtag buy the block program, the hashtag buy the block program, okay, B-U-Y, all right, which is encouraging African-Americans to buy homes uh, and own the homes in their community. One United Bank is also a designated community development fund. One United offers uh, uh, and services mortgage loans, stressing the importance of wealth building to its customer base, the base also holds workshops and financial literacy seminars that highlight uh, black economic equality, black economic equality. Its uh, credit building products are geared toward empowering its African-American customer base with the tools for long-term financial success. While this may sound like marketing mumbo-jumbo, there are many incidents of white-owned financial institutions perpetuating structural racism. It is an indisputable fact that some of the biggest banks in the world treat the African-American customers unequally. J.P. Morgan Chase paid $55 million in January of 2017 to settle charges that it discriminated against African-American and Hispanic uh, borrowers. In 2011, Bank of America handed over $335 million for making its minority customers pay more than its uh, white customers for the same loan. Just this past May, May 2017, the city of Philadelphia filed a federal lawsuit against Wells Fargo Bank, alleging that the bank has discriminated against African-American and Hispanic borrowers since 2004. Now, he goes on to ask the question, so why do people continue to bank white? Now, it was understandable 20 years ago when people chose their lending institution based on the branches available to them. But when was the last time you walked into a brick-and-mortar bank? If you walked into your local branch right now, would anyone in the entire building even know your name? Okay? Even worse, would anyone even care? The primary reason is habit. The primary reason is habit. People have always banked at the places with which they are familiar. In an age when people have switched their shopping uh switch their shopping habit, habits from the local department store to Amazon.com, banking is one of the few institutions that still benefit, benefit from old school thinking, even 
uh, though there is no benefit. Banking is one of the few institutions that still benefit from old school thinking, even though there is no benefit, okay, or no benefit to the African-American community. African-American-owned banks have, have the same products, infrastructure, technology, and accessibility that their wider counterparts offer. Aside from saving and checking accounts, one United Bank offers the same mortgage lending, commercial real estate loans, business deposit accounts, and online banking that consumers rely on from white-owned larger banks. As the hashtag Bank Black movement grows, consumers who entrusted their money to African-American-owned financial institutions will be able to see the effects of wealth building in the African-American community that many white-owned banks have prevented for decades, okay? And, and African-American-owned banks are more likely to give loans to African-Americans who want to buy homes, take out loans to start businesses, different things like this. African-American-owned banks are more likely to do this. So the more money we put in African-American-owned banks, the more money they have to loan out to the community. And this is something that Terry Williams talked about. And she talked about how um, many people don't understand um, the purpose of a bank as well. She talk, This is in the article from... Uh, AtlantaBlackStar.com. Uh, black dollars matter. What will it take for black dollars for black banks to start leveraging our wealth and recycle dollars within the community? Again, so this is once again this is from June nineteenth. Uh, was well, this June nineteenth, two thousand sixteen? So this was one month before the hashtag Bank Black movement really took off. Okay, so Terry Williams in this article. On page three of the article, she says that um, the role she, – she, she, she talks about how she believes that many people in the African-American community do not understand the role of a bank, do not understand the role of a bank. And she says the role of a bank is to be a recycler, to be a recycler. What that means is people place deposits into the bank, and the role of the bank is to take those funds to the community to build wealth or for buying a home. Okay, make loans to start businesses, uh, buy homes, buy land, buy real estate, to buy commercial real estate, things like this. This is the role of a bank, okay, to be a recycler of funds. She goes on to say that in turn results in additional deposits that go into the bank and the recycling goes on, okay? So in this article, they talk about how back at, back at this time, before the movement took off, one United Bank managed assets of $650 million, and they were the largest African-American-owned bank based upon assets managed, okay? But if we look at Hispanic-owned banks, right, and Hispanics, the largest Hispanic-owned bank, uh, and these, this is information coming from the FDIC, the Federal Depository Insurance Corporation, okay? This is from their data. data. The largest Hispanic-owned uh, bank, is uh, International Commerce Bank of Laredo, Texas. International Commerce Bank of Laredo, Texas. They have, uh, at, this, uh, at this point in time, in June of 2016, they were managing assets of $9.6 billion. $9.6 billion Hispanic-owned bank compared to $650, uh, $650 million African-American-owned bank. $9.6 billion. They're approximately... 55 million Hispanics in this country, 
45 million African Americans. Okay, and this bank is located in Cafe. Uh, sorry, this bank is located in Laredo, Texas. When we look at Asians, Asian Americans make up four percent of the U.S. population. Okay, approximately four percent. The largest Asian-owned bank, based upon assets managed in 2016, was Cafe Bank, located in Los Angeles. They managed assets of $13.2 billion. $13.2 billion, Asian-owned bank. $9.6 billion, Hispanic-owned bank. $650 million, African-American-owned bank. Okay? So uh, we deposit less than one-half of 1% of our $1.3 trillion uh, economy, because we we talk about the $1.3 trillion economy that African Americans have, buying power, less than one-half of 1% of that is deposited in African American-owned banks. But many people don't think of this, think of it like this. We talk about, you know, recycling our dollars and spending dollars with African American-owned banks. I mean, businesses, African American-owned businesses, but we don't look at how the community benefits when we deposit our dollars in African-American-owned banks, okay? So check out that article also from AtlantaBlackStar.com, all right? And um, all right, so I want to go to this clip here. I want to go to this clip here. This is from News One Now with Roland Martin. I want to pull up this uh, uh, pull up this clip. So this was from uh, last year. This is from February of um, February 14th, 2017. Okay. And they talked about the uh, Bank Black movement. Because once again, this movement started earlier in 2016. All right. And that hashtag, I think, was actually started by One United Bank. If I remember correctly, I think it was One United Bank to actually start that hashtag. But it's gonna it's gonna really take off after the killing of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. Okay. Um, so let's go to this clip. This is from News One Now with Roland Martin. Bank Black USA on a mission to move five hundred million dollars into black banks by twenty eighteen. This is on February uh, 14, 2017. Let's go to this clip. Bank Black, that's the message of the new movement to increase deposits at black-owned institutions. But the concept is not new. Just one day before he was assassinated in 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. delivered a speech stressing the importance of showing our power through our dollars. In his famous I Bitch of the Mountaintop speech, he said, quote, we've got to strengthen black institutions. I call upon you to take your money out of the banks downtown and deposit your money in Tri-State Bank. We want a banking movement in Memphis, end quote. That was April 3rd, 1968. The Tri-State Bank, of course, was a local black-owned bank in Memphis where uh, at the time he made that speech. Uh, folks, uh, so now hip-hop activist and uh, Killer Mike took to the airways in Atlanta, echoing King's clarion call for another local banking. We don't have to burn our city down, but what we can do is go down to your banks tomorrow. You can go to your bank tomorrow and you can say, until you as a corporation start to speak on our behalf, I want all my money. Right. And I'm taking all my money to Citizens Trust. 
All right, joining us now from Brooklyn uh, via Skype, Justin Garrett Moore, who was so energized by Killer Mike's charge to Bank Black that Justin co-founded Bank Black USA. Uh, Justin, also, uh, we're seeing now uh, that, look, we're losing black banks. Uh, Chicago, uh, same thing uh, when it came to Seaway Bank. Uh, so a third largest uh, collection of African Americans in the country, uh, no, no, back, no black banks in that city. Right. Yeah, the um, the loss of these black institutions is something that we really need to be uh, concerned about. In 1994, there were 55 black-owned banks in the U.S., and today we've only got 20, uh, including, as you mentioned, Seaway that was uh, just sold. So uh, really having a, a movement of people to move their deposits and move their money into these banks is really critical to make sure that we have uh, the the financial foundations for these institutions to succeed. And when you talk about this particular movement, uh, what have you seen thus far in terms of uh, success? Mm -hmm. So, uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, Killer Mike was really uh, instrumental in getting the word out and, and restarting the movement uh, in July, and this was really after uh, the sort of the rash of police uh, shootings uh, over the summer, and so uh, we've seen uh, from banks all across the country, uh, over $50 million uh, that's been reported to have been moved, uh, thousands of individuals, uh, everything from uh, small deposits, people doing kind of, uh, you know, protest uh, deposits, $100, $1,000 here uh, and there, but we've also seen uh, large institutions and uh, celebrities moving kind of larger sums of money. So in total, uh, from the, the information that we've been able to collect, it's at least $50 million of, of money moved to these black-owned banks, which is, is really key. Uh, we did see a loss of, of momentum, of course. That always happens. Uh, these banks don't have the same kind of marketing muscle that the, the major uh, retail banks have, and so it's really important that this be a grassroots effort, and it's been really great with, uh, you know, Donald Trump's election and uh, Martin Luther King Day and Black History Month, there's been a, a recent uh, sort of uh, revival of, of the interest in banking black. And so we've seen, uh, you know, Angela Rye going on the Breakfast Club uh, and sort of getting the, the momentum started again. And so we, we've really seen uh, a lot of these banks get um, some new life and new energy from uh, not only the deposits, but also just the attention and, and uh the potential to get new customers, to rethink their services, to modernize, uh, and of course the, the end goal ultimately to uh, in turn provide better financial services and lending uh, to the black community. So we've been seeing uh, One United Bank, Liberty Bank, uh, Citizens Trust, uh, many of the, the black owned banks uh, have increased their efforts uh, with financial empowerment programs, uh, just getting the word out and, and getting people to think about uh, the economic picture uh, for themselves, their families, uh, and their communities. All right, then. Uh, we certainly appreciate it, man. Good luck with the effort. All right. It's great. Uh, Bank Black USA, uh, at Bank Black USA on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All right. Thanks a lot. Okay, great. Uh, real quick comment, uh, Avis, uh, Wilmer, and Sue. Uh, this is exactly what's needed. I mean, we have as a community, as a collective, somewhere around $1.3 trillion in buying power, and unfortunately, 
well over 90% of that goes right out of our community. One of the ways in which all of us can actively resist this administration and make our power known is to make sure that we don't support institutions that don't support us. And therefore, it's imperative that we transfer our economic power outside of those interests and into those banking institutions that will be there for us when we Walmart, do If we were a country, I think we'd be about the uh, 13th or 14th largest in terms of uh, that $1.7 trillion number. And you're absolutely right about opposing the administration, but I think we need to flip that and stop talking about being against it and understand it's pro-us, mm -hmm. not anti-them. So, I 100% support someone who has a solution-driven approach, a market-driven approach to a problem. I think this makes sense. It makes much more sense than holding up a picket sign or, you know, going to a protest. You know, do something with your money, uh, do something for your community. That's the way to go. Actually, all of them make sense. So you could protest, have a picket sign, have a march, and do this because it's all it's effective. More effective. Actually, I won't say it's more effective because uh, we have a history of how the other stuff works too. We just quote Dr. King, he did both. Kickstart your day at 7 and get the news you need from the perspective you want. News One Now with Roland Martin every weekday morning at 7 on TV One. Okay, so that was from February 14th, 2017. Uh, it was early this year and they talked about how since the um, Black Bank movement really took off uh, last year, and they really talked about how um, Killer Mike really got things going in July after the killing of Walter Sterling and Philando Castile. $50 million has been shifted over to African-American-owned banks, okay? So I'm not sure what the number is now, but that's that's good. And the, the hashtag Bank Black movement uh, continues, hashtag bank black movement continues, okay? I want to go to this other clip here. Um, having problems here with Firefox. It's running slowly. I may have to reboot. Uh, I mean, I may have to uh, refresh the... Um, let me refresh uh, Firefox. I want to go to this other clip here from NBCnews.com because they had a clip from a few months ago and uh, they did a segment on NBC News and was shown on MSNBC also. And uh, they interviewed Terry Williams of One United Bank in the uh, clip also. So we're going to go to that here in just a minute. Okay, on Facebook, Veronica said money is the key. Well, actually, knowledge is the key. It's not money, it's knowledge, because you can have money and not know what to do with the money. Money is it's the knowledge that's the key. So you know what to do with the money, because when you look at the NFL, 78 percent of NFL players are having severe financial problems or bankrupt after two years of uh, leaving the league. And when you look at the NBA, 60 percent of uh, NBA players are either broke or having severe financial problems after five years from leaving the NBA. When you look at people who take lump sum payouts for um, winning the lotto and lotteries. 64% of people who take lump sum payouts from the lottery, uh, they're having severe financial problems or, or are broke within about five to seven years, something like that, after winning uh, the lotto, they take lump sum payouts. So they lack the knowledge of what to do with the money. 
Okay. So this is why when I deal with the 13 forms of wealth, I teach about 13 forms of wealth. Money is not number one. Knowledge is number one. Because you could, you could give people money today if they don't have the knowledge of how, what to do with the money, how to handle the money. They'll be broke. They'll be broke in a few years. Okay? So this is a mistake people make. And then we have to understand the foundation is African history and culture. The foundation is African history and culture. It's your history and culture that gives you your VIPs, your values, your interests, and your principles. Your values and interests and your principles. And, and this tells you what to do with the money, what to invest it in, what to buy, the type of businesses to have. It's the history and culture that teaches people that they need to have their own banks and to deposit their money in their own banks. The history and culture influences the psychology of a people. Their psychology influences their actions and behaviors, which ultimately ends up with their results. Okay, so this is why a reprogramming has to take place for African Americans. A, a reprogramming has to take place, and we have to reclaim African history and culture, which gives us our foundation, gives us our VIPs, our values, our interests, and our principles, and it influences our economic empowerment and influences our political empowerment. All right. Um, okay, so I'm going to go to this other clip here in uh, just a minute here. I'm waiting for uh, this to load up. We'll go to this other clip. Then I want to get to the story here about Colin Kaepernick. Planetblackstar.com um, had a good article uh, about Colin Kaepernick. News1.com had one also. Um, and he donated, uh, well, we know he, he had a pledge to donate $1 million to various charities doing positive things, okay? And his latest donation was $25,000 to uh, a nonprofit organization aimed at, at helping uh, DACA recipients aimed at helping DACA recipients, okay? Um, we'll deal with this. Uh, be sure to read the article that I wrote. Uh, you can read all of my articles at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Be sure to read the article that I wrote uh, dealing with um, uh, African Americans and uh, immigrants. I'll give you the name of that article here in just a minute. Looks like uh, we're having a problem here with uh, uh, Firefox. Just a second. Let me give you the name of that article. Um, okay. Debunking the myth that immigrants take jobs away from African-Americans. Debunking the myth that immigrants take jobs away from African-Americans. Uh, what many people are missing is that because of white supremacy and racism, you have groups of oppressed people of color being pitted against one another so that the power structure, the top 1%, continues to profit. But I dealt with, I dealt with studies dealing with this. I dealt with... Uh, I have the uh, video of the clip from uh, News One Now with Roland Martin, where Roland interviewed uh, Dr. William Spriggs, who is an economist and teaches at uh, Howard University. And he dealt with this based upon facts and evidence, not based upon opinions 
or based upon uh, anecdotes, all right? And when you deal with the facts and evidence, it's much different than what people's opinions are uh, when it comes to this, okay? So very important for us to deal with facts and evidence. So read that article. Also read the latest article I just posted tonight, The Racist History of the White National Anthem, The Racist History of the White National Anthem, uh, and the Pledge of Allegiance, the racist history of the white national anthem and the Pledge of Allegiance, okay? Uh, while we wait for this to load, uh, be sure to visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. All of my DVD presentations are there. All my DVD lectures are there. Uh, we also have the um, uh, Elementary Genocide uh, Part 3 uh, documentary just came out in August of this year. Elementary Genocide Part 3. Academic Holocaust. I'm featured in that documentary along with Professor Kaba Hiawatha Kamene, uh, formerly known as Booker T. Coleman. Um, you have uh, Professor James Small in there. Uh, you have Dr. Boyce Watkins, uh, Shahrazad Ali, and this deals with uh, uh, this deals with taking control of uh, African American children's education. It's just with the school to prison pipeline, fighting against that, uh, et cetera. Academic Holocaust uh, Part 3 is available right now at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We also have a bundle pack where you get all three installments for $50, and you get three of my DVD presentations free. It's regularly $60 for all three installments. Um, it's available at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We just posted the link here on the thread of the broadcast on Facebook also, okay? All right, so 914-338-1375 is the call-in number. If you have a question or comment, 914-338-1375 is the call-in number if you have a question or comment, all right? Uh, I want to go to this other clip here. This is from... um, NBC News, and this deals with um, the Black Bank Movement also. And let's see here. I got to find this clip. I uploaded it. All right. Let me uh, let me check something here. Nine one four three three eight thirteen seventy five is the calling number. If you have a question or comment, nine one four three three eight thirteen seventy five. Okay. We'll be back in a few minutes. Listen to the uh, African History Network show right here on uh, Blog Talk Radio Network. I'm your host, Michael M. Hotep, founder of the African History Network. Okay, looks like it just wiped out some of the clips I uploaded. Okay. Oh, here we go. Okay. Here's a trailer to Elementary Genocide Part 3 from director Raheem Shabazz. 
from the creator of the award-winning documentary series, Elementary Genocide 1 and 2, comes the third and last installment, Elementary Genocide 3, Academic Holocaust. From kindergarten, everything is designed in the curriculum to murder your psychic abilities, to murder your intellectual possibilities, to murder your creative possibilities, because that is the way the curriculum is designed to keep Africans from developing the capacity to recreate themselves and their communities and their families and their institutions by their own hands. Let us remember that the pistol grip of today was that slave grip of yesterday. Let us remember that the handcuffs of today, people mouth, were the ropes and the shackles of yesterday. Shit that those slave masters of yesterday have become the judges and the prosecutors and the police departments of today. And there's just some things that are not comfortable for white people. They're not comfortable for them to talk about the possibility that Africans were here before the Europeans. Contributions for African people, not just in America, but African people worldwide, is not incorporated into the curriculum. One of the ways that you keep a people oppressed is to not show them their true history. Because if I can make you feel inferior, I can control anything that you Black people have bought into white supremacy and they don't know it. It's like instead of fighting the picture of white supremacy or the picture that white supremacy painted of black people, we've accepted it. The oppressor knows that if they put our contributions into the curriculum, if they put our children into the curriculum, put them into the picture, put them into the frame, then we'll tear this thing out the frame. So we as a community have to take hold of the educational process of our children and we have to begin to take our children down that road of ma'at truth and justice and righteousness in order to educate them in a way that they will become productive citizens, not only of the country, but of the world. Well, African liberation has a lot of dimensions. You know, we're talking about one, African peoples all over the world, most of whom are not free to self-determine their lives and their future. Freeing the lands of Africa, freeing the nation states of Africa, so that they can self-determine and develop their own industry and their own culture and their own way of life with an economic system that can support them by utilizing the wealth in the ground that is theirs. Most of the education that we're getting now, either on elementary level, junior high, high school, all of the educational systems that we don't own, uh, all of those denigrate all of the accomplishments of African Okay, so that is uh, the trailer of Elementary Genocide Part 3, Academic Holocaust. It's available right now at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. For each copy that you purchase, you'll get one of my DVD presentations free. And you purchase the bundle pack, uh, you get all three installments of um, Elementary Genocide and three of my presentations uh, free for $50, okay? All right, uh, I'm going to go to this next story here, and uh, this deals with um, Colin Kaepernick uh, and his donation of uh, $50,000 to, um, donation of $50,000, I'm sorry, $25,000 
to uh, organizations to help uh, DACA recipients. Okay, and this will tie into the. Um, this will also tie into the uh, story about the NAACP suing the Trump administration over uh, DACA as well. All right. So AtlantaBlackStar.com uh, has this article. From September 20th, 2017, Colin Kaepernick donates $25,000 to non-profit aimed at helping DACA recipients. And um, it talks about how he has uh, put up millions of dollars of his own uh, money to support community service and organizing efforts. Uh, He recently gave a grant to help immigrant he recently gave a grant to help immigrant youth impacted by uh, Donald Trump's repeal of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, better known as DACA. Uh, Kaepernick, whose national anthem protest uh, sparked controversy last year, previously announced that he would donate uh, his first $1 million earned to organizations aimed at tackling issues close to his heart such as police brutality and racial discrimination. Uh, His latest pledge announced earlier this month is a $25,000 donation to D.C.-based United We Dream. United We Dream, uh, which is the largest immigrant youth-led organization in the country. The group's uh, goal is to, uh, quote, advocate for the dignity and fair treatment of immigrant youth and their families, regardless of immigration status, end quote, according to its website. Uh, um, They go on to say, quote, we just got this awesome call saying Colin Kaepernick wants to support you all in this crisis uh, moment. Uh, United with Dreams spokesman Adam Luna told uh, AtlantaBlackStar.com via telephone. Uh, He went on to say, quote, it was just kind of one of those um, uh, it was just like what, just kind of one of those uh, moments. Like she uh, used the F word. Uh, we didn't even have to ask. Now, according to uh, Colin Kaepernick's official website, uh, the donation uh, will go toward the following: addressing the inequities and obstacles faced by uh, immigrant youth. Uh, over one hundred thousand members. Uh, current folk uh, over 100,000 members. Uh, their current focus is to organize and work for immigrant children to keep DACA in force. Uh, $10,000 will uh, be applied for upcoming travel, air, hotel, lodging, and ground transportation. Uh, United We Dream recently held uh, an event in Washington, D.C. and sent 300 Dreamers to lobby to keep DACA. Uh, this budget will pay for 75 to 100 attendees for a similar rally, up, uh, a similar upcoming rally. $10,000 will be used for a series of upcoming gatherings in New York City, uh, Connecticut, Texas, Florida, and New Mexico. Uh, facilities. Uh, this will go to uh, go towards the rent for facilities and security, transportation, food, and technology. will be used for text service, uh, text message service services for the network of over 100,000 members. Okay. Now, uh, Adam Luna, uh, who is a um, spokesperson once again for United We Dream, Adam Luna went on to say, uh, quote, I have to say around here, 
uh, it was uh, a pretty rough. It, it was a pretty rough moment. Like uh, he said, there were a lot of people in tears uh, when uh, Trump announced the revoking of DACA. Actually, he sent Jeff Sessions out to go do the dirty work. But Jeff Sessions wanted to do it because Jeff Sessions is dirty and he has an antipathy for immigrants. Okay, Jeff Sessions, uh, former U.S. senator from Alabama, who cheered the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, uh, cheered the gutting of the 1965 Voting Rights Act uh, because of the Supreme Court uh, decision of Shelby County versus Holder in 2013. So Adam Luna said uh, of the moment uh, they learned of Trump's plan to end DACA. Quote, we were ramping up like we're going to have to raise all this money. And then the call from Colin Kaepernick just came, and it was really nice, end quote, okay? Uh, so the, uh, Adam Luna, uh, so the spokesman explained, Adam Luna explained that Kaepernick's foundation has divided uh, its commitments uh, into different chunks per month. And, well, this is Colin Kaepernick's spokesman, uh, has divided uh, Kaepernick's um uh, donations into different chunks per month and United We Dream was grouped in with the June donations. However, he said the call regarding the uh, Colin Kaepernick's $25,000 pledge came in September of 2017. Okay. And uh, let's see, you can look at the donations Kaepernick has made because so far it's been about $825,000 in donations he's made. So he's almost reached his pledge of one million donations, one million dollars in donations. Uh, his website is Kaepernick Seven, the number seven dot com, Kaepernick Seven dot com, and I'm on his website right now, and it has a quote from Colin Kaepernick: "Quote: I will donate one million dollars plus all the proceeds of my jersey sales from the 2016 season to organizations working in oppressed communities." $1,000 a month for 10 months, $1,000 a month for 10 months. So he's making good on his donations and you can keep track of his donations at his website, Kaepernick7.com, Kaepernick7.com. Okay. All right. So let me, uh, go here. I'm trying to, uh, Okay. All right. So let's go to this next story here. So this next story deals with the NAACP. Now we know that um, the Congressional Black Caucus Legislative Weekend is going on right now. I think it started either today or yesterday, but it's going on right now. And the NAACP has filed a lawsuit against um, the Trump administration over the revoking of DACA. Okay. News1.com has an article, uh, Scores of Africans and Caribbeans to be Hurt by End of Obama Immigration Programs, NAACP Lawsuit. They may have to change the title of that article because it's about 50,000 50, of the 800,000 DACA recipients are of African descent. They're either from Africa or the Caribbean. So the... NAACP contends that the Trump administration unlawfully defaulted on America's commitment to protect young undocumented immigrants of color living in the United States. Okay. And this article was written by Derek Johnson. Derek Johnson is the NAACP interim president and CEO. This article is from Wednesday, September 20th, 
2017. Okay. And in the article, um, it said, and I'm going to go to this clip also because he was interviewed this morning on News One Now with Roland Martin. So we're going to go to that clip here in just a minute. But it says, over 100 years ago, this is Derek Johnson, uh, our organization, NAACP, was established in defense of uh, people of color or colored people, as he put it, in, the, in, the, in these United States. True to our name and longstanding mission, the NAACP, uh, a century later, uh, still stands steadfast and immovable, now fighting for the civil rights of individuals and families impacted by the illegal retention of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals okay, Program, also known as DACA. Now, the America of today is a proud nation of immigrants, none of us are uh, an indigenous people. Okay, Now, that's incorrect, because African people were here before Native Americans even came into existence. You know we dealt with this here on the show before. Read the book. Read the book, The First Americans Were Africans, Documented Evidence by Dr. David M. Hotep. First Americans, Documented Evidence by Dr. David M. Hotep. The Khoisan have the oldest DNA on the planet. They come from southern Africa. The Khoisan were here going back at least 51,700 years. The people who we call Native Americans are the offspring of an intermixing of Africans who were already here and Asians who come here around 3000 BC. Okay. And, uh, there are 566 federally recognized tribal nations here in this country. And you're going to originally these, these native Americans were the, the, they were a mixture of Africans and Asians, but you're going to have some groups of African people who are pure Africans who get reclassified by European settlers as native Americans. Okay. Now, the transatlantic slave trade did happen, and you're going to have between 300, uh, between uh, 388,000 to about 1.4 million Africans brought here during the transatlantic slave trade. Okay, you're going to have some that are intermixed with Native Americans. We know that the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creek, Cherokee, and Seminole Indians. We know that all five of those Native American tribes own African people. Okay. So to say that uh, none of us uh, is an indigenous people is is historically inaccurate, and most African Americans don't know this history. All right, these are even before the people who we call the Moors even came here. There's another group of African people. The Moors are descendants of the Garamantes, a larger group of African people in North Africa. The Moors are descendants of them. Hannibal was Garamante. Saint Augustine was Garamante. Okay, but African people were here building pyramids and pyramid mounds up and down the Mississippi River. We were here for tens of thousands of years. And Dr. David M. Hotep deals with this in his book, The First Americans Were Africans Documented Evidence. So Derek Johnson goes on to say the America of today is a proud nation of immigrants. None of us is an indigenous people respectful of this legacy of diversity, the NAACP filed a lawsuit this afternoon against President Donald Trump, uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, Homeland Security Secretary Elaine Duke, and uh, the U.S. Uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, uh, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, and the Department of Homeland Security. 
our purpose for taking this pivotal step is to prevent the Trump administration from dishonoring our government's promise of ensuring the American dream for all children, including immigrant children. We are pressing this lawsuit not just on behalf of children and young people of color who've emerged to become positive, upstanding, and valued members of our community, but also in defense of our members, many of which include DACA registrants from all across the nation. We're additionally stepping forward to protect the hundreds of thousands of African, Caribbean, and Mexican immigrants who've been impacted by the unlawful recent termination of the DACA program, and we intend to uh, prevent uh, Donald Trump from implementing the full implication of its rescission. He goes on to say, quote, we're additionally stepping forward to protect the hundreds of thousands of African, Caribbean, and Mexican immigrants who've been impacted by unlawful termination, by the unlawful termination of the DACA program, and we intend to prevent Trump from implementing of the full implication of this rescission. Okay. So specifically, the NAACP contends that the defendants unlawfully defaulted on America's commitment to protect uh, young undocumented uh, immigrants of color in the United States, and more significantly, that the administration violated the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment. The administration violated the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause of the Fifth Amendment, the Administrative Procedure Act, and the and the Regulatory Flexibility Act. Uh, there are some 800,000 DACA recipients across the country and even more who would have been eligible for the program were it not unconstitutionally canceled. The termination of DACA severely impacts people of color. Most DACA registrants are, let me repeat this, the termination of DACA severely impacts people of color. This is something that's not often talked about. Most DACA registrants and those eligible for it uh, and those eligible for it are ethnic minorities. And according to uh, figures cited by the Migration Policy Institute, roughly 36,000 immigrants of African origin were immediately eligible for the DACA programs. The report denotes that over 20,000 youth from the Caribbean nations of the Dominican Republic and Jamaica are eligible for DACA, while over uh, 80% of registrants are of Mexican lineage, okay, or Hispanic. Mexican, basically Hispanic, but they're spe- specifically talking about Mexicans. Now, during his campaign for the nation's highest office, Donald Trump publicly stated that immigrants of color, particularly those of Mexican origin were criminals, rapists, and thugs. And that when Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best, they're sending people that have lots of problems. This indicates that his administration's cancellation of DACA not only violates the Equal Protection Clause, but also that it's racially motivated in part. Trump's vile, prejudiced sentiment could not be farther from the truth. Immigrants and DACA registrants are law-abiding, tax-paying contributors to society, 
and ejecting them out of the only country they've known is not the American way. It serves only to dramatically disrupt the lives of hardworking people as quickly as possible without regard to consequences. Of a surety, this is largely an issue that affects our Hispanic and Latino American brothers and sisters, but we cannot and will not forget the, the 500,000 to 600,000 equally affected um, uh, black, African, and Caribbean undocumented immigrants in America, most notably, most notably the tens of thousands the tens of thousands who are eligible for DACA. So when we look at the article from um, AtlantaBlackStar.com, from September 7th, 2017, how America's 565,000 black immigrants are reacting to news of DACA reversal, okay, because of the 11 million approximately undocumented immigrants, about 565,000 of them are of African descent. So this is who the NAACP are talking about, who they're referring to, when they're saying we will not forget the 500,000 and 600,000 equally affected black, African, and uh, 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 African-Caribbean undocumented immigrants in America, okay? And you have uh, of the 800,000 DACA immigrants, because that is that was for children, and they had to meet certain criteria, be a certain age when it became available in, I think, 2013. Of the 800,000 DACA recipients, approximately 50,000 are African or Caribbean, okay? So Derek Johnson, interim president and CEO of the NAACP, goes on to say, as the nation's legacy civil rights group, we at the NAACP remain resolved to eliminate the impact of white supremacy from every aspect of life in the United States. We welcome all to join us in this important work. Okay. So you can read this article at um, news1.com has this article, news1.com. Scores of African and Caribbeans and Caribbeans to be hurt by end of Obama immigration program NAACP lawsuit, okay? So I think they're going to have to change the name of that uh, article because it's, uh, it's uh, tens of thousands, actually. It's about 50,000 who are going to be hurt by this, all right? Um, I want to go to this clip here from News One Now with Roland Martin from this morning. Uh, he interviewed uh, interim president Derek Johnson uh, about this issue. Okay, and let me see. We'll go to this clip here. All right, let's go to this clip. <laughs> All right, y'all. So, when the White House uh, defended uh, repealing the DOC executive order, Sarah Huckabee went to the podium and repeated the Stephen Miller line of just how devastating this is. These illegal immigrants are to black people. So I want to play this. This is what she said from the White House podium. I think that it's a, a known fact that there are over 4 million unemployed Americans in the same age group as those that are DACA recipients. 
um, that over 950,000 of those are African American in the same age group, over 870,000 unemployed Hispanics in the same age group. Those are large groups of people that are unemployed that could possibly have uh, those jobs. Oh, the White House, they're saying we care about black people now. That's what they've been saying. And so uh, on this issue of illegal immigration, uh, look, when I had my radio show on WVON in Chicago, uh, we, whenever immigration came up, a lot of black folks would call in saying, we're losing our jobs because of this. Well, is there actual facts to that? And so I said, let's book a man, Bill Spriggs, Dr. Bill Spriggs, of course, a professor of economics, Howard University, also chief economist for the AFL-CIO. So, so Bill, on that point, let's start through with DACA first. Mm -hmm. The White House says, here are all these people who don't have jobs in the same age group as the uh, folks in DACA, and look at all the black people who don't have jobs. And, and Stephen Miller used the same line about a month earlier. What say you? Well, I mean, this is clear on the historical facts. The big downturn for the black labor market occurred in the 1980s, in the early 1980s. So when the 1980s started, if you were a young black man and you had a college degree, you had the unemployment rate of white college-educated men, and you had the same earnings. But under Ronald Reagan, who undercut affirmative action and made clear he wasn't going to enforce it, the gap in unemployment for blacks reappeared and by the end of his presidency, you were black. It had nothing to do with you went to college, finished high school, you were black. Blacks also lost the largest share of union jobs during the 1980s. So that downturn had nothing to do, had nothing to do with immigration. The 1990s, when we had the biggest wave of immigration, black unemployment went to record lows, Black income reached record highs. We have never had black unemployment lower for longer at the end of the 1990s, or black income as high as it was at the end of the 1990s. So just as a historical fact, just a you know, basic fact check, you can't line up the history of immigration in the late 20th century mm -hmm. with the economic history of advancement for black people. So they don't line up. So, 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 so how do you deal, though, with, with, with this perception? And I've heard it from African-Americans who say, oh, uh, when I look at people who are, who are cutting grass or who are doing construction in various neighborhoods, they, black folks used to have those jobs. Now they uh, are Latino. They say you go into fast food restaurants and you'll see uh, all Latinos uh, working uh, in a fast food restaurant when you used to see uh, African-Americans. And, and so that's, that, that's what I hear from people, and that's really what the White House is saying. Yeah, but let's be clear what DOC is about. These are people who are going on to college, mm -hmm. who are joining the military. So these are not people trying to scrub floors. They're not trying to be at a fast food restaurant. And there's a reality that the economy can't grow without population growth. So part of the reason it's difficult to disentangle the effects of immigrants on job opportunities is that their actual presence creates job opportunities. So you don't have people grow, Wait, you don't have population grow, you don't have... So do, you, do you have proof? You, you're saying that there's no displacement of jobs between 800,000 people and another minority group who possibly could have these jobs. And we know sitting here that black women have one of the highest percentage of advanced degrees in the country. 
Is there any? Do you have any proof that it isn't the case that they're not displacing when, African American jobs? When, when you look at where they land, where okay. do immigrants land, which right. is not everywhere in the United States, right. and it doesn't map onto where black people live everywhere. Right. So when you make the comparison to where where are immigrants and where they aren't, you see one thing in common. America mm -hmm. loves to discriminate against black people. Right. So when you say we don't get a job, <laughs> it doesn't make a, I mean, we act like, oh, if Hispanics weren't there, they would hire us. No, if Hispanics well, weren't I mean, there, well, they still wouldn't hire When we, we hear this the, argument, the, the we never... Discrimination is real. But when discrimination we hear this argument, is as real. As much as I know that Stephen Miller and Steve Banner are weasels and we know why they're pushing this argument, I never hear any factual proof no, that, that, no, no, that no. would this, indicate this, that they're wrong. This, this has been studied forever. <laughs> Economists have looked at this carefully, and you cannot detect the relationship. And again, because you have areas where there's been lots of migration, yep. and you have areas where there's been very little migration, and you can't see a difference. And then you have Washington, D.C., where it's very hard to find a, a black a, person cutting grass or doing construction. Pass that point, I'm going to Eugene. Okay, but there are separate issues here. H-2B visas, mm -hmm. which are used very often right. in the long care industry, mm -hmm. that's not immigrants. That's a temporary work visa designed especially for employers. Just like the H-1B visa is designed mm -hmm. especially for employers to make a distortion in the marketplace for wages and who will get hired. So at the beginning of this century, when we decided we were going to bring in hundreds of thousands of computer programmers, the share of all Americans who majored in computer science went down because they were responding to the fact that the wages of computer programmers stopped going up and employers preferred to use a captive set of workers right. held under a temporary work visa. You have to differentiate between workers who are free to move about, and this is why DACA is so bad. Ending DACA, ending DACA is so bad, because you remove the mobility of these workers. As long as workers are free to move around, Eugene. it works. Eugene. A couple points. Um, Dr. Spriggs is absolutely correct. Um, you know, at least from the, the, the economists that I, the reports that I've read that's come out of Cato, AEI, when you have immigration, when you have an inward flow of immigration, you get a boost in GDP, you get a boost in, in local economies, you get a boost in new businesses and new jobs being created. Um, secondly, uh, for, for, for the local economy, for the local economy, um, you know, a, a, a gentleman that starts uh, a business X, Y, and Z isn't just, isn't, isn't just serving a particular ethnic group, he's going to serve the, the <laughs> local economy. Ralph? One thing that we have completely glossed over is we need to talk about the difference between illegal and legal immigrants. That's the first thing. And now when you listen to what Sarah Huckabee said, she made a broad statement about there are 4.5 million Americans who are unemployed in the same age group. Right. And then she broke it down to 950,000 um, black people, right. 800,000 Hispanics. So it's not just that. For me, it's not just about the 950,000 black people. It's about the 4.5 million total Americans no, no, see, who, are out, the, uh, uh, no, who are out see, of the workforce. See, but see, for me, on the black network, on the black show, it's about the 950,000. Because see, on every other network, they ignore the 950,000 and focus on everybody else. Well, and the, so, the, and, 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 but that and, one million and, black people is included in that. No, 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 no. But the reason, but the reason, the reason I wanted to. I, I said we were going to have this it's conversation, and because when this issue of, of, of illegal immigration, undocumented workers comes up, 
And again, when I had the radio show, if I got 10 callers, 9.5 were calling saying, send them back. They're taking our jobs. And, I'm, and, and, and so I said, no, we, we need to have a black conversation. Are the facts there to bear that out when people say, oh, okay, so all of a sudden, if you send DACA folks, if you, if you, if you repeal this, uh, are black folks going to get those jobs? If in other we, jobs. Well, That's why. Well, I, 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 one, second, one, one second, one second, one second, one second. Bill, mm-hmm. go ahead. Further to the point, if you take what he is doing right now, and freezing that consumer market because if I don't know I'm going to get deported, I'm not buying cars, I'm not making the investments. Yeah. Those are jobs. You're taking money out of the economy. You're freezing the economy. So if you send them back home, it, it doesn't replace the demand for those workers. So it's not like, oh, I sent 800,000 people home. They have how money. Do we, how do we they know contribute that, Bill, to the. How do we again, know that? How do we know that? Be, we know that because mm-hmm. we know areas where immigrants went and where they didn't go. It is not uniform. If you look at a map of the United States and look at where uh, Hispanic immigrants went and you look at where black people live, they don't map one on one. Okay, so here, so, so, no, no, so, no, no, so here we go. So, <laughs> so that variation that allows economists to see what happened to black people in economies where immigrants didn't go. And you know what? We still got unemployed because discrimination is real. Well, hold tight. So he, no, 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 hold, hold on. Here's the deal. I got to go to break. Here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to do. All right, so uh, since you teach at Howard, uh, let me know Monday or Tuesday when we go to two hours. Okay, y'all, we go two hours beginning on Monday. So I want you to do, I want you to come back, okay, and I want you to actually, I want to see some maps. I want to see some charts. I want to put it up on the, on the monitor, and I want you to walk us through that so people at home can actually see what you're talking about, and we can actually show that, all right? So let's do that. So we'll actually do, we'll do actually two segments on it, and so we actually walk folks through that, okay? Okay. All right, so you get to, you, you get to have a, the largest class <laughs> you've ever taught at one time on Monday, all right? Sounds okay, good. I appreciate it. Days on TV One. I will never lie to you. Oh my God. Roland Martin. He doesn't want to talk to us. He wants to ignore us. Uncensored. Hell no. no. That ain't gonna cut it, boo. Unapologetic. No, no, that, that is fundamentally false. You are wrong. Unfiltered. He wants an America where we all look alike. He ain't talking about black people. Unrelenting. You better go work out. Because you got to fight on your hands. News One Now with Roland Martin. Weekdays at 7 a.m. on TV One. Okay, so that wasn't the clip I wanted, but that was the first clip. That was the, um, that was the clip from uh, September 8th, I think that was. September 7th. That's We, we played that a couple weeks ago when he had... Uh, Dr. William Spriggs on, so that wasn't the clip I was looking for, um, but there's still a good clip because we referenced that. And that's on uh, YouTube, also Roland's YouTube channel, uh, Roland Martin on YouTube. All the clips from uh, all the segments from News One now on TV One, he puts them on YouTube, so you can check that out. Okay, I'm trying to upload again this other clip. This deals with the NAACP suing. The Obama administration. I'm suing the Trump administration, I should say. NAACP suing the Trump administration. Okay, on uh, and we're still on Facebook here. You can post your comments here on Facebook. How's everybody doing uh, on Facebook? Share this broadcast on your own Facebook page. Invite your friends to tune in also. 
All right. So let me um, let's see if we have this here. Looks like it uploaded. Let me try to refresh my screen. I want to go to this and try to play this clip. CEO talked about we got more issues in our neighborhoods and talking about DACA. Well, one, we deal with a number of different topics here. Two, DACA impacts African Americans. Three, if you can't deal with uh, more than one issue at a time, that's a problem on you. If you can't deal with more than one issue at a time, that's a problem on you. We have a no- we have a number of different issues we're dealing with. Okay. Um, Betsy DeVos. I want I want people about Betsy DeVos when she was under um, when she was going through the U.S. Senate confirmation hearings, which is another reason to vote in midterm elections and vote for U.S. senators. Because if there had been one more U.S. senator who was a Democrat, B- Betsy DeVos would not be Secretary of Education. If there had been one more Democratic U.S. Senator, Betsy DeVos would not would not be Secretary of Education. She's dismantling the Department of Education. They've had massive cutbacks to the Civil Rights Department in the Department of Education. Most people didn't even know there's a Civil Rights Department in the Department of Education. And she is reversing policies that President Obama had in place that were actually beneficial for African Americans, but we didn't even know they existed. This is a this is another example of how elections have consequences. This is another example of how elections have consequences. All right. So Uh, AtlantaBlackStar.com has an article from uh, September 11th, 2017. It's a couple of Mondays ago. Was that a Monday? Yeah, that was a Monday. Betsy DeVos rollback on campus sexual assault rules puts women at risk. Betsy DeVos rollback of campus sexual assault rules puts black women at risk. This is written by Narisa Smith, okay? So it talks about how um, each year at this time, college students return to campus ready for new experiences, while most students' experience uh, will include lectures and football games. A few unfortunate students will experience something else. They will experience sexual assault. Unwanted sexual contact is rampant on America's campuses. To grasp the magnitude of the problem, uh, we have to look at the fact that 25% of college women have been sexually assaulted or victims of unwanted sexual contact on campus. 25% of college women have been sexually assaulted or unwanted or victims of unwanted sexual contact on campus. So at any given college, for every four female students, one likely experience a sexual assault during their pursuit of their degree. Okay, so you're looking at 
Now, African-American women are more likely than white women to face a sexual assault during their college years. And for that reason, the rollback of campus sexual assault rules, the rollback of campus sexual assault rules announced by Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos will be particularly harmful to African-American women. Now, the people who uh, told you don't vote, they didn't deal with any of this. They didn't talk about any of this, okay? The people who told you don't vote, they didn't say, wait a second. They they didn't talk about how the Department of Education impacts African-Americans, how reversing these policies from President Obama would impact African-Americans. They didn't deal with any of this, okay? So if we look at the legal framework, Although sexual assault, um, although sexual assault on campus remains a serious issue, there have been attempts to address the serious issue. Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972 prohibits colleges that receive federal funding from discriminating on the basis of sex. Uh, Colleges were aware that Title IX required them to limit sexual assault and harassment on campus, but but they were unclear about which steps to take to achieve that outcome. So in 2011, Vice President at the time, Joe Biden, and Arnie Duncan, who was the Secretary of Education under President Obama, they issued a letter that attempted to give the college's guidance about their obligations under federal law. And the letter instructed colleges that under Title IX, they were expected to, number one, distribute, distribute a notice of non-discrimination to all students. Number two, designate an individual to coordinate Title IX compliance. Number three, develop and distribute an easily understood set of policies and procedures to be followed in the event of sexual assault, okay? Number one, distribute a notice of non-discrimination to all students. Number two, designate an individual to coordinate uh, Title IX compliance. Number three, develop and, and distribute an easily understood set of policies and procedures to be followed in the event of a sexual assault. So although um, there is little definitive evidence, it appears that the uh, Vice President Joe Biden letter had a positive impact on sexual assault reporting. In the years after the letter, uh, in the years after the letter reports of sexual assault rose with a spike just after the letter was issued. So unfortunately, the advances made in the past few years will soon be undone by the new education secretary, Betsy DeVos, who announced um, uh, uh, two Thursdays ago that she will rescind the Obama-era guidelines. While this is troubling to all students, African-American female students have the most to lose when the guidelines are lost. African-American female students have the most to lose when these guidelines are lost. So if we look at African-American women in campus assault, right, 
The data available on this issue makes it very clear. African-American women are at risk for sexual assault on college campuses. In, in a February 2017 study, uh, the University of Pittsburgh researchers surveyed more than 70,000 students from 120 American colleges over a two-year period of time, while 8.7% of white female respondents had been assaulted. 8.7% of white female respondents had been assaulted. Uh, when it came to African-American women, 9.5% of African-American women had been assaulted, okay, which is a higher percentage than white women. Also, at least one, uh, at, at least by one report, uh, one report has noted that uh, compared to white women, African-American women are more likely to be subjected to a physical attack or a verbal threat during their assault. African-American women, according to one report, are more likely to be subjected to a physical attack or verbal threat during a, an assault. Now, because sexual assault is highly traumatic, reporting the sexual assault can be very difficult. Victims of all races may feel uncomfortable reporting the crime but for various reasons. Some believe it is a personal matter. Some are afraid of retaliation for reporting this crime. And some don't believe that anything can be done. It is, uh, some, believe, some don't believe anything can be done. It is not surprising that rape is the most underreported crime on college campuses. While all victims are reluctant to report, African-American women face unique barriers when reporting uh, sexual assaults. In fact, according to the Chronicle of Higher Education, while women on campus are 10 times more likely, uh, sorry, white women on campus, are 10 times more likely uh, than African-American women to report assaults. White women on college campuses are 10 times more likely than African-American women to report sexual assaults. So the, the Chronicle of Higher Education gave uh, several reasons for this disparity. First, discussions of sexual assault often presume a white middle-class victim causing some non-white students to feel their experiences do not matter. Students of color, especially those on college campuses with racial tensions, may not feel comfortable confiding, confiding in or confronting white administrators. Also, other research notes the role of racial stereotypes in conditioning the role of racial stereotypes and conditioning. Since slavery, African-American women have been portrayed as sexually promiscuous. And these hip-hop videos don't help at all because the hip-hop videos oftentimes show uh, African-American women being hypersexualized. And they have the video vixens. They, now, even the term video vixen, the term video vixen did not largely refer to white women. The term video vixen largely was not applied to white women. It was largely talking about African-American women. Okay? So since slavery, African-American women have been portrayed as sexually promiscuous. Some African-American women may avoid reporting 
being sexually assaulted for fear that others, regardless of race, will view the assault as proof that African-American women are sexually immoral. On the other hand, the, uh, on, the other, on the other end of the spectrum, many African-American women have been raised with the stereotype of the quote-unquote strong black woman. And women who have, have been internalized, who have internalized this stereotype may be reluctant to report their sexual assault. Finally, because most rapes are committed by someone of the same race, many African-American women do not report uh, the sexual assault for fear that others in the African-American community will accuse her of destroying a young African-American man's future. So when we deal with how policies impact us on a daily basis, how policies impact our life on a daily basis, and you deal with Betsy DeVos, Secretary of Education, who was nominated by Donald Trump, confirmed by the U.S. Senate, which is another reason why midterm elections are so important and voting for the U.S. Senate is so important, because they do the confirmation hearings of the members of the president's cabinet. But when we look at policies, they have wide-ranging impact. And there are different nuances and different ways that these policies impact the African-American community, which can be different than other communities. For all of the above reasons, all women need more, not fewer, guidelines and resources on campus to combat the problems of sexual assault. For all of the above reasons. All women need more, not fewer, guidelines and resources on campus to combat the problems of sexual assault. Betsy DeVos's, uh, uh, Betsy DeVos' action makes it more likely that campus rapists will get away with their crimes and potentially create more victims. So what about African-American men? Nevertheless, some have agreed with Betsy DeVos' action because they claim that under the, uh, under the Obama-era policies, many young men have been falsely accused of rape. These advocates point to the fact that the uh, Vice President Joe Biden letter told campuses that students could be disciplined for sexual misconduct if a school panel if a school panel found that it was, quote, more likely than not that the student committed the assault. If the school panel found that it was more likely than not that the student committed the assault. Furthermore, they believe that the young men are denied due process. While any miscarriage of justice is terrible for the accused, there are many reasons to challenge the arguments of those supporting Betsy DeVos. While rape is severely underreported, when it is reported, the report is usually substantiated. A study investigating campus rape found that as little as 2% or as many as 10% of rape claims were false. Between 2% and 10% of rape claims are false. Thus, somewhere between 90 to 98 percent 
of rape allegations are true. Clearly, there are more young women on campus suffering in silence than there are young men being falsely accused. However, if a young man is falsely accused, there is redress. While advocates claim that the men do not have due process, uh, the uh, Vice President Joe Biden letter specifically directed schools to develop procedures for sexual assault hearings. The letter stated that the colleges were to give uh, the accused student notice, allow him to present evidence, and allow appeals. Moreover, while the moreover while the uh, quote more likely than not end quote standard is lower than uh, that used in criminal proceedings. Campus proceedings do not carry criminal penalties, so the use of a lower standard is reasonable, okay? While the more likely than not standard is lower than that used in criminal proceedings, campus proceedings do not carry criminal penalties, so the use of a lower standard is reasonable. Although some campuses may have been overzealous, in the prosecution of certain cases, the fault seems to lie in the way the rules were implemented, not with the rules. The fault seems to lie in the way the rules were implemented, not in the rules themselves. So the answer here is not to get rid of the rules altogether, but to provide a new uh, guidance or a new set of guidelines to colleges that will help them reach decisions that are fair for all parties, okay, to provide new guidance uh, to colleges that will help them uh, reach decisions that are fair for all parties. So uh, so what's the takeaway from this? Sexual assault is a horrible crime. African-American women who suffer uh, through and survive Uh, sexual assaults deserve support rather than rolling back the rules that make it easier for students to uh, rather than rolling back the rules that make it easier for students to report their attacks Betsy DeVos would be wise to leave the current rules in place African American women have enough barriers to reporting their assaults they do not need uh, one of the few helpful tools to be taken away. Okay, so check out this article. Very, very good article dealing with how policies impact us. And people don't seem to understand that the Department of Education is all is over all colleges and universities. They regulate online colleges also. They regulate uh, tech schools like ITT Tech, which was shut down by the Obama administration because of predatory practices. The Obama administration shut down a lot of predatory colleges that encouraged students to take out huge student loans. Then they couldn't find people jobs. The students are stuck with these exorbitant loans, stuck with this debt. The Obama administration shut down a lot of these predatory colleges. All this is, the, all this is governed by the Department of Justice. 
and the, the Secretary of Education is appointed, is, is nominated, is nominated by the president. They have to be confirmed by the U.S. Senate. And Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, her Senate confirmation hearing was a 50-50 tie. There were 100 U.S. senators. Senate confirmation hearing was a 50-50 tie. There's a 50-50 tie in the U.S. Senate. Who gets the tie-breaking vote? I'll give you 10 seconds to guess. In, a, in the U.S. Senate, if there's a 50-50 tie, because there are only 100 U.S. senators, so there can be a tie. There are two U.S. senators for each country, two U.S. senators for each state. 50 states times two, 100. Okay? In a, if there's a 50-50 vote, in the U.S. Senate. They don't just leave it as a tie and go home like they do maybe in college football. If there's a 50-50 tie, who gets the tie-breaking vote? So those people on Facebook, you can post your answer. Those listening on Blog Talk Radio, calling number is 914-338-1375. 914-338-1375 is the call-in number. Press the number one key to put you in queue if you have a question or comment. 914-338-1375. Press the number one key to put you in queue if you have a question or comment. So in the case of a 50-50 tie in the U.S. Senate, who gets the tie-breaking vote? This is this is civics one on one. Who gets the tie breaking vote? All right. Took about what three minutes for that. Willie on Facebook said vice president, but America is a corporation, it's all business. Well, you can talk about America being a corporation, but the reason why Betsy DeVos is Secretary of Education is because it was a 50-50 tiebreaker. It was a 50-50 vote. And the tiebreaker went to Vice President Mike Pence. So the people who told you don't vote in the 2016 election cycle, they didn't talk about the fact that the next president is going to appoint an attorney general or nominate an attorney general. Uh, 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 and a, um, they nominate an attorney general. has to be confirmed. They didn't say the next president is going to probably nominate in their first term three U.S. Supreme Court justices, and that is a lifetime appointment. They didn't say the next president is going to uh, nominate a Secretary of Commerce, Secretary of Education, Secretary of the Environmental Protection Agency, okay? And uh, uh, Scott Pruitt, who's the uh, EPA, uh, Secretary of the EPA. This guy's a client, a client, a climate change denier. They didn't say they're going to appoint Secretary of Housing, but Secretary of Education has wide-ranging impact. So some people say, "Oh, we just need to take our children out of public schools and homeschooling." Well, homeschooling doesn't protect them. There's still guidelines you have to follow in the homeschooling. And then they say, well, wait a second, Secretary of Education is over every college and university in the country. If it's an online college, they're under the Secretary of Education. 
if it's a community college, if it's a technical school, all that's under the Department of Education. Pell grants and student loans are dispersed by the Department of Education, which is a redistribution of taxpayer dollars. 62% of African Americans who go to college go on Pell grants. 73% of African Americans that go to HBCUs go on Pell grants. So this is, this is what happens when people don't understand the ramifications of policies and how policies impact every aspect of our life. This is an example. Read this article from AtlantaBlackStar.com. Betsy DeVos' role, DeVos rollback of campus sexual assault rules puts black women at risk. Betsy DeVos' rollback of campus sexual assault rules puts black women at risk. Okay, how many of you all have uh, daughters in college right now? So a lot of people didn't even know about this rollback in the rules. Uh, you know, I've posted articles about this. We've talked about this before here on the show. Um, let me see. There were some articles from Washington Post about this. There's one from Huffington Post, Black Voices. Uh, Betsy DeVos is under fire for scaling back campus rape investigations. This is from Huffington Post. Um, yeah, Huffington Post. Betsy DeVos is under fire for scaling back campus rape investigations. This is from July 6, 2017. The Department of Education is scrapping Obama-era rules for holding universities accountable. But keep in mind, Betsy DeVos was appointed by a sexual predator named Donald Trump who admitted to grabbing women by the vaginas. He admitted this. He's a sexual predator. All right, I want to go, uh, I want to, go to this clip we have it, uh, uploaded here. This is from, um, this, is from uh, this morning, News One Now with Roland Martin from September 21st. This deals with uh, the NAACP sues Trump over DACA. Uh, canceling the program will affect uh, African immigrants. Okay, uh, let's go to this clip. NAACP has become NAACP. the latest organization to sue Donald Trump over his choice to end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program known as DACA. It is also suing U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions and others in the Trump administration on behalf of people of color eligible for DACA. Yesterday in New York, several elected leaders were among 10 people arrested outside of Trump Tower. They were protesting Trump's decision to end the program protecting immigrants who arrived in the U.S. illegally as children from being deported. The NAACP notes that more than 80% of DACA recipients are Mexican and more than 50,000 50, others who are eligible for DACA have African and Caribbean origins. Joining us right now is Derek Johnson, interim president and CEO of uh, the NAACP. Uh, what, Derek, is the legal basis for why suing Trump? Well, I, we believe it's a violation of due process and uh, administrative acts. Uh, for the NAACP, we've always recognized the African diaspora. Mm -hmm. uh, we have in individuals who, who migrate here from the Caribbean, Jamaica, particularly uh, the African continent, and all of us come here from somewhere else. 
and if this country give a promise, uh, we should honor that promise. We should not be in the business of changing the administration. People rely on a promise, and then they have put themselves at risk. Uh, we're talking about individuals who are productive citizens, and as a result of that, we felt it necessary to take action. Um, it's interesting you have attorneys, attorneys generals who are also suing, um, suing uh, Trump over this. Uh, we saw how they lost a significant number of cases when it came to uh, the ban on uh, Muslims as right. well with, with the travel ban. They had to go back and change it. Uh, this administration, especially Jeff Sessions, I mean, this is, this is what he's always wanted to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and they really don't care mm -hmm. if you and others sue. Now, well, the issue here is uh, this administration is appealing to the lowest c common denominator of this nation. Our goal of the NAACP is to ensure that everyone has equal protection under the law. Uh, if we don't have that, we have chaos. We have always operated from a space that the legal principles that we all are governed by should apply equally, and if they do not, we should take action. Uh, we cannot uh, stand idly by and watch not only individuals from Latin America, but understand that, that the diaspora of individuals from Africa also will be impacted and, and do nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, Roland, one of the most important things about this particular lawsuit is that DACA, uh, it is, and the administration rather, is being challenged. Remember, the 10 attorney generals uh, never sued under, uh, to challenge DACA because the administration uh, backed down. The administration never tried to defend this executive order, so we don't know whether it's legal or illegal. But this lawsuit right here by NAACP, uh, hopefully the, ju the judiciary is going to answer those questions once and for all. Because the administration could have defended this, they could have put forth a defense to it and gotten a judicial decision. They didn't want to because of their political core base. They put it to the uh, House and Senate. It's not clear what they're going to do, no matter all the rhetoric that we're hearing from both sides. And so this lawsuit's really important. It'll be interesting to see what the feds say in response to this lawsuit. Uh -huh. And so we need to watch closely. I haven't seen the lawsuit. I don't know whether you're asking for a TRO or any type of injunctive relief, because if you did or if, you, if the lawsuit does, you get an answer pretty qu even quicker uh -huh. in the federal judiciary. And we are. We are actually. Terrific. You yeah. know, understanding that we have three branches of government. Mm -hmm. The reason why the, the past administration uh, issued this executive order because Congress refused to act. Mm -hmm. And as a result, uh, President Obama acted. And not clear they're going to act. And it's not clear they're going to act. Right. And so we keep operating as if there are two branches of government. There's a third branch of government. And NACP said we want the third branch of government to speak to this issue. Because when you give a contract mm. and people rely on that contract, uh, this nation, just like individuals, should be required to follow through on that contract. Mm. Absolutely. I just want to say publicly that we really appreciate what you're doing um, and what the NAACP is doing because doing nothing is not an option. Exactly. Absolutely. Thank you. And, and as a Nigerian, and a Nigerian immigrant who came to this country myself when I was very young, I also appreciate what you guys are doing because oftentimes the face of immigration, yeah. oftentimes the face of immigrants is from those mm -hmm. from Spanish-speaking mm -hmm. countries. Right. And I love the fact that you made it a point to say, no, there's other immigrants from Africa and the Caribbean. Yeah. And, and, and I, I was going to say, and, I, and that is so important because Absolutely. the pushback mm -hmm. that I've received from people, of, from black folks, mm -hmm. uh, you know, honestly, is that why are we in this issue? Yes. It's not it about us. And I think having the NAACP take this step helps them to, to really be able to open up mm -hmm. and understand that this actually impacts our community. I say to people all the time, 116th Street in Harlem, White Plains right. Road that's in the Bronx, that's, that's right. where our people live, who right. some of them are not even here under DACA. That's right. So right. what do you think is going to happen when they come looking for the well, DACA right. folk in your community? And also, and also what a lot of our folks have to understand is who's also aligning with, with voting. So 
folks from the Dominican Republic, folks from Puerto Rico, right. uh, folks from uh, many of those countries. And so uh, understand all that impacts. Uh, Derek, we appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Weekdays on TV One. I will never lie to you. Oh, my God. Roland Martin. He doesn't want to talk to us. He wants to ignore us. Uncensored. Hell no. That ain't going to cut it, boo. Unapologetic. No, no, that, that is fundamentally false. You are wrong. Unfiltered. He wants an America where we all look alike. He ain't talking about black people. Unrelenting. You better go work out, because you got to fight on your hands. Also, News One Now with Roland Martin. Weekdays at 7 a.m. on TV One. Okay, watch NewsOne.com. Go to NewsOne.com. Go to the website. You can read their articles there as well, Okay. All right, so a lot of talk has been uh, taking place over the acquittal of uh, Officer Jason Shockley in St. Louis, uh, 2011 killing of Anthony Lamar Smith. The prosecutor alleged that the officer planted a gun. It sure appears that the officer planted a gun uh, on uh, Anthony Lamar Smith after he killed him. And only the officer's... DNA was found on the gun also. Very interesting. So there were multiple nights of protests in St. Louis behind uh, this uh, acquittal. This was a bench trial, not a jury trial, okay? This was a bench trial, not a jury trial. And is uh, NBCnews.com has an article from September 8, 2017, more violence Marks protests in St. Louis over ex-officers acquittal. More violence uh, marks protests in St. Louis over uh, ex-officers acquittal. And it talks about how a third day of protests in Missouri over the acquittal of uh, a former police officer charged with the murder uh, ended in chaos and dozens of arrests uh, on Sunday. Okay, authorities said Sunday night. So let me see something. The 18th was 18th was Monday. Okay. So St. Louis police said groups of criminals were creating chaos downtown. In a statement on Twitter, uh, police said there were reports of significant property damage. Now, largely during the daytime, the protests were peaceful. At night, after the official protest ended. You had some people that stayed around, and then uh, you had property damage, things like this. But largely the protests have been peaceful protests. doesn't mean they were quiet, but they were peaceful. Now, I've said that you need to have massive economic boycotts, uh, massive targeted sustained economic boycotts in the St. Louis area behind this, and African Americans need to uh, direct uh, dollars from the white-owned banks there to the African-American-owned banks, um, any African-American-owned banks in the uh, state. And also, uh, they need to stop uh, uh, going to the uh, major sports teams, stop going to their games, stop watching their games, stop buying paraphernalia. Um needs to be targeted, sustained economic boycotts, Okay. So uh, an an unidentified chemical was thrown on police, Uh, another statement said, and a bicycle officer was transported to a hospital with a non-life-threatening injury. Now, officials confirmed that more than 80 people were arrested Sunday uh, 
Mayor Lida uh, Lida uh, Krusen, L-Y-D-A, Lida Krusen, K-R-E-W-S-O-N, highlighted that the vast majority of the protesters were nonviolent and blamed agitators for the unrest. She said destruction cannot be tolerated. Destruction cannot be now, okay, so those listening on Blog Talk Radio, we're going to stop broadcasting live in 90 seconds. You can uh, listen to the show, continue to listen to the show live. We'll be here for a few more minutes. Call in and listen by phone at 914-338-1375, 914-338-1375. Or you can um, watch us on Facebook at uh, our fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network on Facebook. Now, Lyda Krusen was not the mayor um, at the time this killing took place in 2011. She just became mayor uh, earlier this year. Okay, I think it was earlier. Yeah, earlier this year she became mayor. She's about a 64, 65 year old white woman. We talked about this here on the show how um, African Americans, uh, African American candidates, split the vote. And you had an African-American woman who got the most number of votes um, of any African-American candidate, even the men. And she lost the election by about 880 votes. She lost the election by about 880 votes because you had African-American men who stayed in the race, let their egos get in the way, as opposed to dropping out of the race and throwing their support behind this African-American woman who had the best chance of winning. Okay, so now more protests were planned for this past Monday with demonstrators planning to gather at 7 a.m. local time uh, near Union Station uh, downtown. Now, the protests erupted Friday after St. Louis Circuit Court Judge Timothy Wilson uh, acquitted the former officer, Jason Shockley, uh, who was charged in the 2011 killing of Anthony Anthony Lamar Smith, 24, who was African-American. And Jason Shockley is white. Now, prosecutors said Shockley shot Anthony Lamar Smith five times and intended to kill Smith, who is African-American, after a high-speed pursuit. Authorities also alleged that he planted a gun on Smith. Stockley said he felt he was in imminent danger when he opened fire. Wilson said there was no evidence that... um, uh, he planted the gun, okay, just Timothy Wilson. So there's this video of him, uh, of Shockley walking away from Smith's car after he sh- after he shoots him, going to the squad car, rummaging in a uh, backpack, it looks like a purple bu- backpack, coming out with a gun. The only DNA on the gun was of Shockley's, and even the screws on the gun. His DNA was underneath the screws of the gun also. Smith, Anthony Lamar Smith's DNA was not on the gun at all. Now, a former alderman, Antonio French, he ran for mayor also. He's one of the, one of the people who split the African-American vote, by the way. Former, uh, a former alderman, Antonio French, criticized authorities' response to the protest, saying they were, quote, repeating the mistakes of their predecessors, end quote repeating the mistakes of their predecessors. He said, quote, they're treating this like a disaster 
doing briefings with law enforcement officers and delivering updates with stats and numbers about arrests made. Okay, he, he made these comments on Twitter. The only thing uh, they offer the community is um, uh, they be allowed to First Amendment rights as if that's a concession. The only thing they offer the community is they be allowed to First Amendment rights as if that is a concession. Okay, so check out this article from uh, NBCNews.com. More violence marks protests in St. Louis over ex-officers acquittal. And they have links to uh, other articles and video clips dealing with this topic also. Okay. But this is reason, one of the reasons why the Black Bank Movement is so important. One of the reasons why. Uh, the other thing, when you have these protests, and I've talked about this before. When you have these protests that take place, at the end of the protests, at the end of all the marching, they need to march themselves down the black-owned businesses and buy them out, redistribute the pain through economic withdrawal, okay? At the end of these protests, you got hundreds of people coming together. At the end of those protests, march down the African-American-owned businesses and spend your dollars with them and buy them out. You got to redistribute the pain through economic withdrawal and re- redirect dollars to African American owned businesses because these are the businesses more, most likely to employ our own people. Okay? And when we do business with them and they have increased cash flow, increased revenue, they can hire more people from the community. All right. Uh, I think we have the clip. Uh, this other clip here dealing with the Black Bank movement. This is from NBCnews.com. So I think we have this um, clip now. Let me check. Do we have this? Because uh, I wanted you to hear this. This is from April of 2017. And. Um, Here, let me uh, try to upload this, okay? Here is um, Kerry Cadet. This was from uh, December 26, 2016. This deals with the Kwanzaa Crawl, the Kwanzaa Crawl. AtlantaBlackStar.com had an article about the Kwanzaa Crawl and how hundreds of African Americans came together to um, learn about Kwanzaa and support African American-owned businesses, Okay. And uh, here's what happened. Organizer of Kwanzaa Crawl and the founder of Operation Mobilize, which is the organization that puts this whole thing together. We put together the whole entire event in three weeks with 17 bars, 16 different teams and team leaders. Uh, we haven't been sleeping. It's a very small team. It's like two and a half of us, three of us, as we are always looking for ways to bring people and the community together. We're always looking to try to find ways for people to take an active role in the things that happen in their community. So this is just another one of our initiatives. We think it's important that we support the small black-owned businesses that support us, that hire us, that give us jobs. And it's time that we take a part and celebrate our community while we can and appreciate it. It's super important to tie it with Kwanzaa because Kwanzaa is all about cooperative economics and collective work and bringing people together um, under unity. So this crawl is actually embodies all seven principles of Kwanzaa. It has a whole bunch of people coming together for one purpose on one day, unifying for one goal. It has all the business owners pitching together, cooperative economics, we're here to support you, and we're doing the work creatively. 
with Kwanzaa Crawl. Our goal for Kwanzaa Crawl is actually to have it in so many cities across the, the country. So we want to have it in Harlem, in the Bronx, in D.C., in Houston, in Dallas, in Chicago. We want to bring Kwanzaa Crawl to towns everywhere. I think that it will help the Brooklyn community just by one, giving people a sense of pride in where they come from and when they live. People are really excited to just come out here and do something positive. We saw the whole way to do it. So people are excited to do that and I hope that it starts a conversation that continues, that people know and are conscious to support black, support small owned business, buy locally. And this is how we started now. I think starting the year off this way is a really good way to kick off 2017 with that thought and purpose in mind. Yeah, Operation Mobilize was founded out of a need to, to do something. We are tired of being shot, we're tired of police brutality, we are tired of complaining, we're tired of protesting. So one of the many ways in which Operation Mobilize came to, to get people together is to mobilize them to do something. And this is one of these things, be mobile, do something, learn who your congressmen are, learn who your local uh, assemblymen are. They're all out here, they're all supporting. I know them by name now, I did it last year, this is cool, this is dope, and hopefully we can start the trend in cities all across America. All right, so that is a great job um, with the Kwanzaa Crawl. Um, great job with Carrie Cadet. And she talked about how she wanted to make Kwanzaa cool again, make being black cool again, introduce Kwanzaa to millennials, support African-American-owned businesses. And she says she wants this to spread across the country. So this is something that every African-American organization, every African-American church can organize. They may do this on a monthly basis, one month out of the weekend. They can definitely organize this around Kwanzaa. If they celebrate Christmas, what have you, if you're going to buy Christmas presents, Look at buying them from African-American-owned businesses first if you celebrate Christmas. So this is something we can we can do for Dr. King Day, Malcolm X's birthday, Marcus Garvey's birthday, but definitely do it, definitely do it for Kwanzaa. This is something that every. So that is something that is doable. That's not theory. See, a lot of people come with theory and conspiracy theories and UCC this and nationality that and all this stuff. Most of them broke as hell. I'm just keeping it real with you. A lot of people talk about nationality and UCC all this. Most of them broke as hell. I know a lot of them. Most of them broke as hell. This is something right here that's not theory. This is something they actually did. This is not theory. And most of what I deal with, uh, I show you exam examples of people actually doing it, not theory. Theory sounds good in YouTube debates, but let's see the practical application of it. Let's see the practical application of it. Theory sounds good in YouTube debates. Theory sounds good in lectures, but let's see where's the actual practical application of the ideology. That's what we need to focus on because that can be replicated across the country. 
All right, so there's other clip we'll have to play next time, but the name of this clip uh, is, is at NBCNews.com. So just Google this. Um, see why the bank black movement is on the rise. See why the bank black movement is on the rise. It's from NBCNews.com, April 30th, 2017. See why the S-E-E, see why the bank black movement is on the rise, okay? I'll try to get to this next time. Uh, this date in African-American history, um, we'll come to that in a minute. Hey, uh, visit uh, newbusinesssolutions.com. Newbusinesssolutions.com is one of our sponsors. Uh, with newbusinesssolutions.com, they can uh, provide accounting services for your business, all types of services to help you grow your business, uh, services to increase revenue, new business solutions, N-U, newbusinesssolutions.com, newbusinesssolutions.com, okay? Uh, September 21st, 1872, John Henry Conyers, C-O-N-Y-E-R-S, John Henry Conyers became the first African-American person to enter the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, this date in, uh, let's see, doesn't give a year here. F.W. Leslie, inventor, patented the envelope seal. This date in 1887. This date in 1887. F.W. Leslie patented, patented the envelope seal, patent number 590325. This date in 1933, Clifford Alexander, Jr., first African-American secretary of the U.S. Army, was born in New York City. This date in uh, 1959, Juanita Kidd Stout was named uh, the governor uh, to serve as, was named by the governor to serve as a Philadelphia municipal court judge. This date in 1959. Later, Juanita Kidd Stout won the election for, for a full term on the court and became the first African-American woman elected judge in the United States. Juanita Kidd Stout, K-I-D-D. This date in 1998, Florence Griffith Joyner, Flojo, legendary track star, died in Santa Monica, California. This date in 1998. At the time of her death, Flojo held world records in the women's 100 and 200 meter dashes. And we were all shocked when Flojo passed away. This date in uh, 1998. She was something to see on the track. All right. Visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. You can read all of my articles there. Um, you can order my DVD lectures. You can listen to podcasts of our radio shows. Um, we have a recommended reading list of books there also. And I'll be in... Louisville, Kentucky, with Dr. Boyce Watkins and Zaza Ali, uh, October 29th, uh, September 29th through October 1st at the All Black National Convention, the All Black National Convention. Go to allblacknationalconvention.com, allblacknationalconvention.com for uh, more information, allblacknationalconvention.com. For more information and to register, and I'm, I'm on uh, one of the panels on Saturday um, dealing with reparations and uh, racism and white supremacy. Okay, 
So remember, at the African History Network, uh, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it corrects wrong behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you is based upon what you, what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you have been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man's thoughts, you can control the circumference of his actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Um, we'll talk to you next time. Mod Hotel. Peace. <laughs>